This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. Uh, Rebecca, you were coming to us live from the Mill Valley Film Festival, which tells you that it is regional fall festival season. <laughs> um, so we're going to hear about that. Uh, we're going to look ahead to the Savannah Film Festival. Uh, Hamptons is going on right now. Film festivals everywhere you look. And we're going to kind of look at who the main players and all those have been. Um, we got more news in the Best Actor race front shortly after we discussed Maestro. So we're going to look at um, Best Actor and a couple other acting races in depth a little bit more. Um, and a lot of the Best Documentary contenders are starting to make their way out there. So we're going to get into those too. Um, but let's start with you in Mill Valley, Rebecca. Um, Mill Valley is, you know, kind of always one of the big regional festivals. There's a lot of Academy and other awards voters in the Bay Area. Um, turnout is different this year. Obviously, the actor strike continues, but I'm imagining they got a pretty good group this year. They did. It's a very quaint town. Very cute. I love walking around it. Um, but they, yeah, their lineup is really strong. I did a spotlight screening for Rustin last night with um, George C. Wolf, and he got a huge standing ovation. The crowd really ate it up. But, you know, they have a ton of stuff coming May, December, American Fiction, Bike Rider, Saltburn, Zone of Interest, Priscilla. You know, a lot of the heavy hitters show up here and the audiences are really passionate about it. And they do give out an audience award that's worth paying attention to. They gave it to Tar uh, last year. So, it seems like a small place for a, an important festival, but uh, they do a really good job with the lineup. Wow, I remember when Tar won that audience award. Forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> what a moment that was. <laughs> How is the lack of uh, actors affecting anything, if at all? I, it doesn't seem to be affecting anything. Um, in the main like theater where I was yesterday, there were still like people taking lots of pictures with, I assume, filmmakers I did not recognize from maybe mm. some of the other films that are here. And there still seems to be a lot of excitement. You know, I doing that uh, panel last night with Rustin, of course, uh, George and the producer Tonya were talking about how they wish Coleman could be out and about uh, for all these things. So you, you feel that, especially for these movies that have such incredible performances at the front of them. But um, the festival seems to be buzzing as it would any other year. Yeah, I'm looking at the lineup, and it's very extensive. Like, there's, you know, we talk about Rustin, and it looks like Boy in the Heron is there, Fingernails, like kind of the festival movies we see, but there's a ton of titles on there. So, you know, if you're a, like a really small independent filmmaker, you're still like, getting that benefit of buzz. Yeah, I met a, quite a few last night who um, have had films here before and, and, 
you know, they're not they're not films we cover, but it it does feel like a nice place to have a uh, your film show with this kind of audience. So it's definitely got a lot to offer. Is there anything besides Rustin that's really gotten the crowds buzzing? Not yet. We're still pretty early in the festival. It's a ten day festival, mm. um, so. We'll see what else. I think a lot of these films will play really well with this audience. Um, so I, I, I think there'll be it'll be a hot, a hot debate on what's going to win the audience award this year. I think, uh, David. In I guess two weeks, you'll be heading to Savannah. Maybe not quite two weeks um, for their film festival, um, mm-hmm. which last year you ran into Julianne Moore, and Natalie Portman in the elevator while they were filming May December. Uh, is it playing SCAD this year? to <laughs> like a full circle moment. It sure is, and of course uh, it is. And uh, Todd Haynes is winning a director award. I mean, they have uh, a number of sort of spotlight awards that they give to filmmakers, but yes, it is playing. Uh, it's a pretty similar story, um, and that festival always has really great crowds because it's university run. You get very enthusiastic students. I always like moderating there because you have like the most excited crowd and they laugh at all your jokes. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the list of who they have. Um, you know, SCAD's website has like very helpful headshots of everyone they have. And it's a lot of the familiar names of people who have interim agreements like Greta Lee uh, mm-hmm. for Past Lives or Kaylee Spaney and Priscilla, Peter Sarsgaard. Um, and then uh, filmmakers like Cord Jefferson, Todd Haynes, like you mentioned, um, th- these people, the the small handful of big names who can promote their movies, it's getting a lot of travel time this year. Yeah. And every day right now that counts. I mean, you have Hamptons Film Festival going on. You have Beyond Fest, which was here in L.A., had big screenings of Saltburn and All of Us Strangers. We've been talking about New York. There's stuff like Mill Valley. I mean, there's stuff happening all over the country. And so there is a real dedicated effort right now, I think, on the part of these campaigns to get as many people as they can out there. Um, but I'm sure that even something like SCAD, which is less than two weeks away, strategists are looking at that and wondering whether it'll be possible to bring some other actors there besides that small group you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, as I feel like we've recorded this the last few weeks being like, maybe by the time you hear this, the strike will be over. Um, so once again, I don't know, maybe it'll be over. But it is, you know, they have their films there. They kind of have everything in place. And if you're you know, Barry Keoghan or someone with your movie playing in all these festivals, you're like, okay, I'll be prepared to hop on a plane if you let me. There are there are a couple films there that I'm particularly interested to see how they play. Movies that maybe have had a little bit less of a presence so far, like something like American Fiction, which was such a huge hit out of TIFF. And I think we're waiting to see what that post-TIFF period for that movie is going to look like. Um, I think, you know, Amazon and MGM know that they have a stronger contender on their hands than maybe they thought before Toronto. Um, but that's going to have a big uh, event in, in Savannah. And I know it's it's getting pulled around uh, around the circuit, as they say. Yeah, the question with American Fiction is like, is it going to be a screenplay nominee or is it going to like get in the Best Picture 10? Like, it's kind of how far it can go, right? right? Is Jeffrey Wright a legitimate Best Actor contender? All those questions. I think that that, those are very open for that movie. And another one uh, is Origin. Uh, Ava DuVernay will be on hand for another director award. And that's the closing night film for SCAD. And Neon's really pushing that movie and they really believe in it. They really believe in Anjanou Ellis-Taylor's performance. Um, And and that could be a really good audience for that movie. And it's one that plays to a crowd in a surprising way. I think uh, we can all say that uh, as people who have seen it at a festival, it was an unusually emotional experience by the end. So I'm curious to see how that goes. 
When Scott announced our lineup last week, there was a very intriguing inclusion of a first look at the color purple, which has not played at any festivals yet. It's opening in December. It's kind of looking like a big holiday season release, which is the kind of thing that often doesn't play at festivals at all. You know, they kind of just wait like Iron Claw is we're still waiting for around that time. Um, I guess we don't really know what that's going to mean yet exactly, but that will be very interesting to watch. Yes, I wish I could follow that up with more more insight. Um, but the you know the movie the story is set in Georgia, so I think it's meaningful for the movie to have some kind of presence at this festival. I think it seems safe to say that the trajectory of this movie thus far uh, has been impacted by the strike. I think we probably would have seen it pop up somewhere mm. um, in, a, in a more, you know, official premiere capacity. Um, so we don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but I, I do think it's an indication that it is going to get an awards campaign. It is a movie that they are definitely positioning along those lines, and I think they're just testing the waters a little bit uh, and going to a place that has real significance for the film. Yeah, we're kind of sitting here. I think I said this to you guys last week. Like, often we get to this point where, like, all right, we've seen all the festival movies. Like, what's the big thing that's still coming? We still need something. And it doesn't feel like we need that. Like, it's a very crowded field already. And yet, The Color Purple and Napoleon and Iron Claw are all still waiting in the wings. It feels kind of overwhelming at this point. And it's interesting. Like, you have Ridley Scott. He was doing a contenders thing for Deadline over the weekend in London. Like, he's starting to promote the movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It just hasn't been seen by anybody yet. Um, Richard, you spent some time at Middleburg Film Festival. I think you've been out to the Hamptons, too. I know that, Mm -hmm. like, you are really good at just chatting up people at these things and kind of learning what people out in the world are are doing. Like, you know, what does the buzz out of these regional festivals mean in terms of what we talk about? Like, if something plays really well in Mill Valley, how much do you think that means in the overall course of things? Well, I think in in the case of, like, Mill Valley, um, certainly... And I guess Middleburg, which is kind of the the D.C. area's uh, regional festival or one of their regional festivals, you are getting actual, you know, real Academy voters or voters for other awards bodies. Um, I think Savannah probably, too. I've been there a couple of times and, you know, that feels like a a very invested audience. Um, Not to be trite, but like or, or flippant, I guess, but like. Even if they're not in the Academy, it is rich people <laughs> who like <laughs> movies. And so if they like it, maybe their peers in, who are who are in the Academy <laughs> will also feel the same way. Um, I think it's just, I think demographically, let's say, those festivals do represent at least a portion of the Academy, either literally or figuratively. And I think that's that's valuable. But I also think that the more these films take their product around they kind of learn from the reaction. And I kind of wonder if like yes. campaigns change because of that. Mm. Like um, I'm on the jury at the Denver film festival in November, um, which I have not been to before. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty big festival. They have a lot of the festival movies going, including a lot of foreign titles. And I think that for the international titles, it really helps to get them in front of lots of audiences to really gauge um, what an American response is um, to their project. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that if nothing else, it's just you guys kind of get to road test these things. Um, but in the case of the, the Scads and the Mill Valleys and the Middlebergs and the Hamptons, yes, you are maybe more closely approaching a representative sample of uh, a portion of the Academy. So what you're saying is the taste of things really has its moment to uh, to break out with this specific yes, audience. Yeah, the taste of things will be at Denver, uh, which is fun. I actually, I think I'm going to try to see it again there. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, that movie is going to play like gangbusters <laughs> everywhere. Mm. I I told my mom about it and she was like, what? When is that coming out? Like, you know, it's just, um, I feel like that movie has a, a bright future ahead for itself. Yeah. Is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that feels like it's really primed to get a boost from this? I think American Fiction, you're totally right, David. Um, the Taste of Things, like I said, like the Teacher's Lounge, another international feature that I think could play really well with these audiences. Like what else is going to be talked about more at the end of October? As our um, All of Us Strangers correspondent, <laughs> I, I genuinely have heard about many screenings uh, in v- different cities that have just been audible sobbing has been so loud. I, you know, and I think that, again, it is important to prime people not to expect to cry at this movie, but it is kind of that movie of the festival circuit so far. It is the tearjerker that seems to be landing in a pretty significant way. Um, I'll leave it there if someone wants to take over. <laughs> Rebecca, do you want to throw any out? You know, Nyad is playing uh, here at Mill Valley. And as Richard is mentioning, this audience is an older demographic representative of 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 what the Academy was known for. I mean, it's been rapidly changing, but I think it is sort of the perfect um, test tube of of what those types of voters might uh, lean towards. And, and I feel like that one is going to probably play gangbusters with that audience. So I'm curious to see how it does uh, as it keeps going around. Oh, you know, I would, I would, the other one I would mention uh, is Saltburn. Uh, and mm-hmm. to Richard's earlier point about strategy changing, like, I think going from Telluride to Beyond Fest in Los Angeles with a surprise last minute screening is definitely an indication of maybe a better understanding of how that movie plays with a crowd. And it, apparently that, that screening was just completely wild. I had a friend who was there who said it was completely crazy. The friend was mixed on the movie. So this continues to be feedback for the movie itself. Um, but, you know, it plays really well with a big, enthusiastic audience. And I think that, you know, as we've talked about, Telluride was maybe not the perfect place for that. So it does seem like there is some shifting in terms of thinking there. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Well, coming up at the end of October is AFI Fest, which is going to have, um, you know, titles like Maestro, Leave the World Behind is going to be there, which is another like December release we're all intrigued by. Um, But then a world premiere that uh, I'm very intrigued by is Freud's Last Session, which is uh, this year's Anthony Hopkins movie, which Richard, we all thought was going to be the one at TIFF. Mm-hmm. Which I, one life is <laughs> blanked on its title one for a life, second. Yeah. Um, do you feel betrayed that a different Anthony Hopkins uh, historical drama has swooped in to uh, to steal the attention? Yeah, I'm having that sort of Bernstein Bears, you know, spelling thing where it's like, wait, <laughs> did I see the Freud movie at Toronto? And I just thought it was a different movie. Um, yeah, I didn't know that this was on the docket at all until like, mm-hmm. you know, SPC announced their slate um, like last week. So I'll be curious to see it. I mean, Hopkins is, for someone of, you know, admirably advanced age, like really on a hot streak. So uh, maybe he's equally wonderful in the Freud movie. Um, But yeah, I I do think that One Life would be a really strong contender if it were out this year. I I did unfortunately pick it for my 
uh, vulture movie trivia thing, or not trivia? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, uh, uh, movie game. The uh, fantasy league thing. You still, you still buy your man. You know, you you thought it was yeah. Go far. You know, because I do think it maybe next year if they hold it for next fall, like he's getting <laughs> a nomination for sure. Yeah. Um, whether that's in supporting or lead, I don't know. But yeah, the Freud one is a big question mark for me. But um, I guess we'll hear about it in a few weeks from AFI. Yeah, what's the AFI crowd like as a, um, you know, to receive? Is it more like the regional film festival crowd? Does it skew more mainstream? How's, how does that look? It's it really very, depends, yeah. right, Rebecca? It's very Los Angeles. It's not similar, I think, to Mill Valley or these other festivals we're talking about. And yeah, I think it depends on the film, but it, it, it's definitely very industry from the ones I've been to over the years. Because you have, like, these late-breaking world premieres, that are attracting a different crowd than like the group that's just getting around to seeing Maestro or sure. or whichever, which has made a few stops already. Um, in the case of Freud's Last Session, you know, this was a movie where I was like, maybe it wasn't too much. It didn't, it, you know, it didn't ring off any bells initially because it did skip all those earlier fall festivals, which you would think it would play. Um, but then I realized it was filming still in spring, so it was probably finished very recently, um, and it may just be a thing. So we will yeah. see because they, you know, Sony Classics, it, you know, that movie One Life does seem like a movie they would have picked up, and this may explain why they didn't pick it up mm, for this year. That's true. Um, as an example, or why the movie A Little Prayer, which is actually starting to show up in at festivals, it, it missed all the big early fall ones after its Sundance premiere, but it's not dated for 2023. I assume it was initially planned that way. So they clearly have shifted some things around and. It does seem to be centered on this movie, and I suppose we will soon find out why. Yeah. One big question mark about Freud's last session. I mean, you know, it has Jodie Balfour and Matthew Good in it, but it's directed by someone who I think has only made one feature film and was written by someone who, among their not many writing credits, is nine episodes of The Cosby Show from, you know, about 30-something years ago. Wow. Really? So I'm very curious about, like what the tone or sort of whole bearing of this of this movie is going to be, because um, that's an interesting pedigree, let's say. Well, you've got that and the writer of The Holdovers is a TV sitcom veteran. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's right. It's a yeah. mini trend we've got going on this season. It's based on a play, right? That's what I had thought. Oh, Freud's okay. Last Session. I'm not seeing that on IMDb, but it very well could be. Yeah. Yeah, it's based on a play from about 15 years ago. Okay. So. Interesting. Oh, and it's, yeah, it's about Freud inviting C.S. Lewis over to debate the existence of God. Wow, sounds like a laugh riot. <laughs> uh, and Matthew Good is playing C.S. Lewis, which is kind of interesting. I'm a eternal Matthew Good um, stand. Like, I'm just kind of waiting for him to be in stuff that people actually saw. I didn't watch The Offer, which everyone said he was great in, but nobody watched The Offer. So um, if this can be a chance for him to be in a movie people actually see, I'm all for it. If you could isolate just Matthew Good's performance out from the offer, it, that's a show worth watching. He really <laughs> is good at it. Yeah, that's what everyone said. Um, I, th- I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much to talk about, like Anthony Hopkins crashing the best actor race, although I think <laughs> we've all learned to uh, brace for that. But, you know, we talked a little bit about best actor yeah, uh, last week with Maestro, but like, is there room for anybody else to break into this? Or like, like best actor seems very crowded already. I tend to think not. I mean, unless he really is that good. And, you know, more importantly, the movie has to be at a certain level because it's very top heavy. I mean, there aren't that many contenders, I would say, going for spots at this point, but there's very few that you could rule out, it feels like. So, yeah, um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure where he'd fit into that, especially as we're talking about people like Jeffrey Wright, who feel like they have more of a hold on, you know, potentially breaking in, even though you have all those established names like Murphy and Giamatti and Cooper and Domingo. Uh, it's it's tough to say. It does feel like if Anthony Hopkins or someone else makes it in, we'll be losing someone that feels like a lock. Like it, it just, it feels like so many of those spots are locked up between the people David listed and DiCaprio. And I just, yeah, I, I forgot just, to mention Leonardo It's DiCaprio. like when you forget Leonardo DiCaprio, you know you're But that's five. I mean, that's, that's, that, those five feel so strong. Yeah, yeah. But then like you just said, all the strangers is like making people weep coast to coast. Like is Andrew Scott not just as strong as any of those? He's very much in it, I would say. But again, it's like, for at whose expense yeah right well i think the other thing is that the academy does want to spread the wealth and they've nominated so many out gay actors before that you know <laughs> they don't want to just it's kind of enough already i mean yeah. yeah they probably don't even have to worry about coleman domingo at this point, <laughs> yeah. we'll be fine yeah i i kind of feel like there might be a sad world in which you know it's 2004 all over again and paul giamatti doesn't get nominated yep I oh think my so too. God, that would be so yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, and like and like supporting performances do from you know like Divine Joy Randolph does, picture director writer, but maybe not best actor because it's so competitive. Wow. But we'll see. I hope not. I think he could be taken for granted. I, I've been thinking that too. I mean, it is. I mean, I don't want to just make this a best actor conversation, but it is a really interesting race because I think there are a few you know examples of people where that could happen. We could talk about. Maybe Rustin doesn't play to the Academy, which is a little bit higher brow than that movie. And maybe he's a surprise omission. I just don't see that happening. Um, but it could. Um, DiCaprio is another one where, you know, he's been great in a lot of things. I think he's really great in Killers of the Flower Moon. But I could see that maybe just being an easy one not to check off, given the competition. I, he's missed in ways like that. I, I can't think of what. I mean, I guess he missed for Don't Look Up. And that was a little bit surprising. Like, there are times where people are like, eh, Leo, you're good. We'll, we'll see if you. I was going to say Departed, but that was because of Blood Diamond. So that's not a great example. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a timeline in which Domingo swings into supporting for Color Purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rustin is the project that helps him get there versus the other way around. Yeah. Um, and that frees up a space. I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen Color Purple yet, but um, I have a hunch he's going to be really good in it because um, he's a really good musical theater performer. And he's just really good in a lot Do of things. Do we feel like Killian Murphy is like, really off this list now i i don't no. know what to think anymore i, I know katie doesn't but <laughs> i know no. i've become no, such an I oppenheimer loyalist i think he's in i think we're listing more than five people guys we certainly <laughs> no, we are, are. That, that's my point is someone's gonna slip but i i don't i don't see it being him he's such the face of the movie right. in a way that like i i think that especially him never having been nominated before or even really getting a role like this in a movie uh i think there will be a lot of excitement for him i do think that movie needs not that it, I mean, obviously it was a huge success, but it's going to start feeling old because it came out so long ago and it isn't, do, it's not a festival kind of movie. It needs some sort of second wind to remind people, I think, as we get closer and without the actors out there and yeah. Mr. Nolan does not do much press. So I'm curious how they're going to do that. Been interesting to see Greta Gerwig on another pretty robust tour for Barbie. Like yeah. she just mm-hmm. did a London talk. So yeah, yeah it's, you're, I think you're right. 
But I do think, like, there's a lot of actors in Oppenheimer who didn't, like, we didn't know that their roles were huge until we saw the movie. Um, like, I just, I just went to a second viewing of Oppenheimer last week because it was still at my AMC. Um, had a great time. Highly recommend seeing it a second time. Um, and then just You're the Oppenheimer correspondent. <laughs> That's clearly my role. Uh, but, like, people like Josh Hartnett um, or on Aaron Riker, you know, that they were like, you see the movie and you realize how great they are. I think if the strike ends in time for them to be able to talk about it, which we all hope it will, um, that might be your second wind where yeah. you can kind of get the, those other voices out there. Yeah. I think if you're Robert Downey Jr., also, like, your opportunity is now. Like, I would assume he will get out there as strongly as he can. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's his to lose, I think, Downey Jr. But yeah. Rebecca, did they not tell you, Universal is detonating a nuclear bomb at Mill Valley. <laughs> Run! Good thing I'm leaving this morning, yeah. guys. <laughs> um, can we talk about supporting actors, since I'm the one who just brought it up, but I... Kind of something we were talking about last week made me want to bring it up. Maybe it was talking about poor things in Mark Ruffalo. Supporting actor feels a little less insane than best actor, but not a lot. Um, and I think supporting actor has been boring a lot in recent years. Um, one of one of you guys has come up with the like lovable dad theory that like if you play a, a charming dad in a movie that everyone likes, you will win best supporting actor. And that's not really the vibe. I don't think there's any lovable dads in the mix that I can see here. Um and you like De Niro's extremely unlovable uncle is the, the theme we've got going on this year. Um, I agree with Richard that uh, it's Robert Downey Jr.'s to lose, but the competition for those four remaining slots is going to get competitive too. Could Willem Dafoe be called a lovable dad in Poor Things? Yes. <laughs> you know? And this, this, yes, this is the point, which is for the last four years in this category, we've had double nominees. Mark Ruffalo is going to get in for Poor Things. Mm. And I think Willem Dafoe absolutely could could sneak in there as part four of that. Four years in a row? I did not process Banshees, that. Banshees, which was, I think, deserved. Both yeah. Barry Keoghan yeah. and, and Brendan Gleeson were great. Uh, Power of the Dog. I love mm-hmm. Jesse Plemons, but he definitely, you know, rode that wave mm-hmm. for that movie. And he actually could again for Killers of the Flower Moon. Probably not completely out of the question if that movie hits. Um, yeah. Year before that was Judas and the Black Messiah. We have the, the talked about that. Strangest pair of Oscar nominations <laughs> ever. And then year before that was The Irishman. Yeah. Wow. She and Pacino. And then Three Billboards was not, you know, there's like one year off and then Three Billboards in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. That is really wild. So you think that Ruffalo and Defoe could both get in? Well, I think there's, I I think they could. I think there are a few like permutations. You could probably talk about Matt Damon for Oppenheimer too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a a big part. Mm -hmm. He hasn't uh, been nominated in a while. Um, And yeah, I think Killers of Flower Moon probably too. Yeah. I mean, is that happening just because this category is a little thin most yep. years? It just, it's like, well, we like that movie. Let's give them two. I, uh, yeah. I, and this year it's not, I don't think. It feels a, a little better this year. I mean, I'm, I'm a whole, like, I would love, I feel like John Magaro and Charles Milton, I'd love for them. Oh my God, I know. That's the thing is if those two particular, I mean, those are two of my favorites and yep. totally deserve it. If those can really find traction, then I don't think it will happen. But and also Coleman Domingo, who is an unknown factor here. Yeah, maybe. but yeah. Uh, otherwise, like Dominic watch Sessa out. in the Holdovers, like that movie is such a like core trio. And like we talked about Giamatti, I think Dave Joy Randolph is in a strong position. But like, you know, if in a, in a less crowded year, I feel like he'd have a really strong chance. And you know, he would get like sort of the Lucas Hedges for 
Manchester by the Sea nomination, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, example. Like, yeah. a, like, hey, welcome to the party, kid. You're not going to win one for 30 years, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're still here. Um, I heard, I don't know if you guys heard this, but I heard that Matthew Good is playing C.S. Lewis in some kind of movie coming up. <laughs> uh, I'd love a Matthew like a Good, good g- campaign. That would be I exciting. I would love that. Yeah. Um, I mean, like scrolling through Gold Derby, where they kind of like stack up the odds for everybody going way down. You get like um, Paul Meskel for all the strangers at like rank 16 or Christmas Cena in Air, who's wonderful. Like that movie, I think mm. it's tricky as a spring release. That's an but, interesting like, one. That'd be a great campaign if that actually took off. Um, I think it's I think it's a deep bench this year. Matt Damon and Oppenheimer seeing that on Gold Derby. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Damon, um, great in Oppenheimer. Stand by it. And like a much bigger part, I think, than I thought he was going to be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is more exciting this year. And I hope that some exciting... I mean, there is a five that's just kind of like five veteran actors who've been nominated before and like, okay. But there's a different way they could go where a Melton gets in or a John Magaro gets in and that adds some extra excitement. Yeah, I... I always root for the new for it to be newcomer heavy and like and you Domingo know, Don, too, yeah, yeah, and like Donnie Jr. has been nominated before, but like his narrative toward finally winning is so strong that like that would that would not feel uh, kind of obligatory the way that it could for other people. Right, and the Academy did quietly delete the uh, Tropic Thunder nomination a couple of years ago, <laughs> <laughs> hoping no one would notice. He's been nominated once before for Chaplin, and that is it. That's and then we can move yeah. on. Mm-hmm. I mean, him, he and Ruffalo both are you know different overdue narratives, but. Um, Maybe kind of similar, too, where you would really root for either of them uh, to finally take something home. They escaped the Avengers and made it back to the Oscars in one piece. (laughs) Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Uh, David, last week you did a feature on The Mission, the Nat Geo documentary that is out in theaters this week, I believe. Um, I don't know what, mm-hmm. you know, I, know, I know Nat Geo stuff goes to Disney Plus, so it should be streaming at some point. Um, but I got to watch it shortly after I um, read your piece and thought it was really wonderful and helped bring some clarity to a documentary race that's felt very fuzzy all year. I feel like we talked about it a couple weeks ago, maybe even after TIFF, and we're like, what is even out there? Um, so... Uh, why is the mission something that we should keep an eye on? The mission comes from uh, Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss, who directed the unfairly snubbed, in my opinion, Boy State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. this this movie is a very different and a very different key for them. Uh, it's it's not one where they're doing this verite style, following a group of people around, capturing their footage, and making their film in real time. This is the story of uh, an evangelical missionary uh, named John Chow who died uh, at 26 after becoming really consumed by this idea of converting a group of people on this isolated island uh, in the Indian archipelago with no outside contact, you know, couldn't speak. There's no language that he would know to speak. Um, They would view him as an invader, and indeed they did, uh, presumably. And so the documentary has this really beautiful 
kind of dual structure where on the one hand you they have a- had access to his diary and they follow his journey going here and and what motivated him and it's told largely through animation and these adventure nar- in the style of these adventure narratives like Tantan that he was obsessed with as a kid uh and then it also explores this larger question of western society and indigenous communities um and and tracing very ambitiously uh what those dynamics have looked like over centuries and how this is kind of a microcosm of a much broader problem. And it's it's a lot to chew on, but I think the documentary really deftly balances them. And it's National Geographic, as you said. Uh, I saw it in Telluride, and there were a lot of big doc names like uh, uh, Chai Vasarhelyi and Jimmy Chin, who directed Nyad, but who are best known, of course, for directing movies like Free Solo. Uh, were for Nat Geo, right? Like that's, for Nat Geo, yeah. but yeah, that's the point. Is they 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 know this space, uh, and this is their big horse, and I, I think it's a really strong contender. I would expect it will at least get them their overdue first nomination. Yeah, I'm 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 doing a Q and A for that one uh, next weekend. I'm really excited to watch it. It sounds because I'd read about that story. And this guy had really run afoul of a lot of local law, which you're yep. really not supposed to go to this island because it was illegal. Yeah, it was yeah, illegal. yeah, they're kind of an uncontacted tribe, um, and it, you're you know, and they are going to defend themselves if they feel they need to. But there's it also dovetails, I think, nicely with this HBO doc series called uh, Savior Complex mm. that just came out um, about a missionary uh, in Uganda who opened a clinic with no medical expertise and may have caused the deaths. Of many children, it's you know the documentary uh, sort of leaves that a bit up in the air, but um, yeah. So maybe this is just one of the hot topics of the season. I mean, as, as it should as it should be, perhaps yeah. every year and for many years. Um, so yeah, the mission feels like one of those like solid like I, I hate to use this word about a grim story, but entertaining things that also feel sort of nourishing for the mind, and those are rarer than they should be. I think. I feel like yeah. Boy State was really a very different kind of film, but a really similar kind of like, we're going to take these people as they are. We're not here to pass judgment. We're not here to like talk about who's right mm-hmm. and who's wrong. And that was such a captivating thing about Boy State. And I think the mission does that in a really different way. 100%. That's, I think, one of their real strengths as filmmakers is understanding the, you know, in the in our piece, they call it a bias that they come into a project like this uh, as filmmakers while also being very feeling very determined to present these figures, these subjects um, as they are, and in the case of the mission, especially give you a variety of perspectives on who they are, what they did, and and why they did it. So the question is, does having a lot of nuance uh, get you far in the best documentary Oscar race? Uh, sometimes not, which <laughs> may be a problem with this category. Um, I don't know. like do, do, does it feel like this movie by being this excellent? Like makes it more of a contender? Does it have a My Octopus teacher to compete against? It does. And it's at Netflix and it will make you cry. Right, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think think American Symphony is very much building to be that octopus teacher movie that everyone is going to be talking about and does create a lot of emotion and has a a very dynamic uh, subject at the center of it. Uh, with John Baptiste. So I didn't, you know, I knew of him, but I did not know much about his story. And after watching it, I was like obsessed with him, which I think is, is something that a lot of people will feel after seeing it. Yeah. yeah. And he is available to do interviews, unlike the star yeah. of mm-hmm. most movies at this point, which for now remains a really huge advantage. My mother-in-law loves John Baptiste. So. And he has an Oscar. He's got fans. He has so many awards. <laughs> He's got a lot of awards. And, 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 
you know, the, this and the mission both premiered in Telluride. And amid all the, you know, big starry premieres like Saltburn, All of Us Strangers, movies we've talked about a lot, these were two movies I kept hearing about a lot to the point mm-hmm. where I saw the mission because I'd been hearing about it like in line and things like that. So they were examples of really successful Telluride launches. At the time, American Symphony didn't have distribution. Um, Netflix picked it up, and I think that they very rightly see it as a movie that could go all the way in that race. Yeah. I mean, seeing John Batiste like lead a parade down the street of Telluride is like my <laughs> strongest memory from the festival. Wait, this like year. a literal parade? <laughs> well, you know, like a gathering of people watching him play music on you the street. Would, and you would hear like, oh, he's performing here. Sorry, we have to leave. Like it would yeah, just be yeah. this instantaneous sort of flow towards wherever he was on Colorado Avenue. <laughs> It looks like American Symphony is making its way across a, a good handful of regional festivals. Uh, Middleburg it won the Audience Documentary Award at Woodstock. Um, is the mission doing the same thing? Or I guess it's out in theaters, so maybe a little bit less festival heavy. Yeah, it's going to SCAD. I mean, I know it's going to SCAD. So. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like a two-film race, because obviously you get five nominees in this category. Um, is there anything that feels like it could be coming up from behind on these two? I think there's a lot of um, musician sort of focused docs, which I, I know we have music docs every year, but there's also the Little Richard documentary. And then they shot The Piano Player, which I have not seen, but I have, you know, I know Sony Pictures uh, Classics is pushing um, that one quite aggressively as well. So I, I feel like uh, I have some catching up to do in this category, but I, I am curious about these other uh, music docs. Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's it's early. There's quite a few. You have um, Roger Ross Williams, who is kind of everywhere this season uh, between Cassandro and he just had a, a doc series on Apple. Uh, he has stamped from the beginning with Netflix, which you know, Netflix, again, they're very high on that. Um, there's the Errol Morris documentary with John LaCroix's last mm-hmm. interview called The Pigeon Tunnel that got pretty good reviews. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. It, it, it'll be... One thing that's interesting about this year, I think, versus past doc years is it doesn't feel as Sundance heavy. You know, it's mm-hmm. almost always the majority of nominees are, are movies that premiered at Sundance. And I'm I'm not sure that's going to be the case this year. Um, I mean, just the two we mentioned feel like among the likeliest nominees, American Symphony and The Mission. Um, and Stamped also did not premiere there. Pigeon Tunnel didn't. Um, there are quite a few, like The Eternal Memory, um, that got really good reception and have campaigns behind them. But it feels like the buzz is a little bit more behind the the recent premieres. Yeah. The Little Richard documentary did premiere at Sundance. I saw that there. I thought that was really interesting. And then I think the Michael J. Fox documentary still was also at Sundance. Um, and, you know, he's a recent honorary Oscar winner. It seems like someone you don't want to count out. Mm-hmm. That had an Emmy run, too, and I don't understand the rules of that. But it is campaign- campaigning <laughs> for the Oscars. So. If anyone would understand the rules, it might be you, and the fact yeah. that you don't might say I something. I understand it in reverse. Like, I, I have a good grip on what happens if you are or are not nominated for an Oscar and you want to go for the Emmy after that. But I, yeah. I'm i still fuzzy on the reverse, because I thought the Academy was stricter about that, the Film Academy. They've changed the rules a couple times, too. You um, don't say. I think, <laughs> I think we might have some uh, reps writing us in to explain this to us after they hear this episode. So thank you guys. We're trying to help everybody (laughs) out. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I am still on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. 
Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what you do not want to hear from your representatives in this new era of data transparency goes to David Canfield. It's at Netflix and it will make you cry. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.